It's Wednesday, August 31st. I'm Pam Jones. A green light from the FDA today on two new COVID boosters to ward off the highly contagious Omicron variant. The U.S. has its first death believed to be the result of monkeypox. Baltimore County health officials are reaching out to residents considered high risk for contracting the virus. County council members are eyeing a raise to themselves as well as the county executive who's raked in the dough, according to the latest campaign finance reports. I'll get a breakdown from our state government reporter on how much is in the coffers of Maryland's gubernatorial candidates. And our education reporter has a conversation with the Johns Hopkins medical director about how the weight of the past two and a half years will impact learning this school year and beyond. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day made possible by GBMC Healthcare. With the upcoming fall season, the FDA has authorized two new COVID booster shots to combat the Omicron variant. They're described as revamped boosters made by Pfizer and Moderna. The Pfizer reboot is for people ages 12 and up and the Moderna booster for those 18 and older. The FDA commissioner says the extra shots will provide better protection against currently circulating variants and the new and improved vaccine should become available sometime after Labor Day once the CDC signs off on it. Over 18,000 cases of monkeypox in the U.S. thus far, near 50,000 globally. And there's now word of the first death, presumably, from the virus in the state of Texas. Health officials there say the deceased was an adult resident of Harris County and that the person also had other severe illnesses. The Texas Department of State Health Services also added that although there's been no official cause of death, they say the patient who died on Sunday is a presumptive positive for monkeypox. No other information about the deceased is being released out of privacy for the family. The very first case of monkeypox in the U.S. was diagnosed back in May. In Baltimore County, health officials have been reaching out to residents who are at a high risk of getting monkeypox. They're asking them to fill out a survey to determine if they should get vaccinated. WIPR's John Lee reports, according to the state health department, there have been 461 positive cases of monkeypox in Maryland, 36 of them in Baltimore County. The county survey asks questions about sexual and other skin-to-skin contact. Anyone can get monkeypox, but individuals who are at highest risk are men who have sex with other men. Baltimore County Health Officer Dr. Gregory Branch says they want to vaccinate anyone who's been in contact with someone who's been diagnosed with monkeypox. And then there are other people who are at high risk um, because of their exposure to somebody potentially who um, had monkeypox or because of their behaviors, they don't really know. You can find the survey on the county's health department website. Prince George's County has had the most positive cases of monkeypox in Maryland, followed by Baltimore City. John Lee, WIPR News. Today is International Drug Overdose Awareness Day, a day to remember those lives lost due to overdoses and to raise awareness to prevent future deaths. Behavioral Health Systems Baltimore is one agency working to prevent overdose deaths in the city. WIPR's Bethany Raja with that story. 
Adrian Bridenstine, Vice President of Policy and Communications for the organization, said fentanyl is in almost everything one can buy on the streets. Because of this, the agency's prevention arm, Be More Power, distributes testing strips as part of their Go Slow campaign. It's just making sure that the user is more informed and using drugs in the safest way possible. Be More Power also goes into areas where drug use is rampant to distribute naloxone overdose prevention kits. We believe that naloxone should be as easily accessible as addiction treatment and, and other types of services. Bridenstine said years ago these types of programs were controversial, but things are changing. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. Baltimore County Executive Johnny Oshevsky is rolling in dough compared to the Republican opponent in the general election, according to campaign finance statements released today. Olszewski, who is a Democrat and is running for a second term, has nearly $1.9 million in his campaign coffers. His Republican opponent, former Delegate Pat McDonough, has about $4,600 in the bank. And I'll talk to WIPR's Rachel Bay shortly about the campaign finance reports in Maryland's gubernatorial race. Baltimore County Council members are considering raising their salaries as well as the pay of the county executive. John Lee reports the council is expected to vote on the proposed pay hikes next week. At a hearing Tuesday night, Democratic Councilman Izzy Patoka said constituent services alone is a full-time job. Back in the day, council members would hear from people through a phone call, a letter, or at a community meeting. Now, the portals for constituent services include a text, an email, a social media post, a Twitter Council Chairman Julian Jones, a Democrat, said council members in Baltimore City and in Prince George's and Montgomery counties make more. All of these we are below, even with the increases, and the council has not received a raise since 2014. Council members would see their pay increase from $62,500 to $69,000. The county executive's annual salary would go up from $175,000 to $192,000. John Lee, WIPR News. The summer temperatures continue to be disruptive to the first week of school across the city. Baltimore schools that don't have air conditioning will be dismissed early for the rest of the week due to the hot weather. The dismissal times will vary based on the morning bell. Virtual learning programs will dismiss at their regular times. As Baltimore City prepares to take control of the Back River Wastewater Treatment Plant from the state, scores of volunteers will be testing the water in their communities. Some 50 volunteers were given water collection kits to sample and monitor the Back River and other waterways. Collections are expected to begin tomorrow and then transported for analysis. Democratic gubernatorial nominee Wes Moore is entering the last two months of the campaign with a significant financial advantage over Republican Dan Cox. WIPR's Rachel Bay joins me to discuss the latest campaign finance reports, which were due to the state at midnight last night. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Pam. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am great. Give me a sense of scale. How big is Moore's advantage? So between July 4th and August 23rd, Moore and his running mate Aruna Miller reported raising more than $2 million combined, with about $1.4 million still in the bank at the end of that period. By comparison, 
Cox and his running mate, Jordana Schifanelli, reported raising just over $200,000, with just over $200,000 left in the bank. Among the other candidates running for governor in November, the only one who has enough money to have to report it to the state is libertarian David Lasher. He had just under $10,000 on hand at the end of the reporting period. Candidates that don't raise or spend more than $1,000 are not required to report. Rachel, are these numbers surprising to you at all? No, not terribly surprising. Moore has, Moore has proven to be a pretty prolific fundraiser. State records show the campaign has raised about $10.4 million since the start of 2021. That comes from more than 26,000 donors, including many who listed out-of-state addresses. Moore has also had help from some high-profile friends. For example, Oprah Winfrey hosted a virtual fundraiser for him during the primary. And last month, he had a fundraiser with filmmaker Spike Lee on Martha's Vineyard. On the other hand, Cox's campaign has raised just under a million dollars since the start of last year. And that includes roughly $40,000 Cox loaned the campaign, plus another $28,000 he transferred from his House of Delegates campaign account. Put this into a broader context, Rachel, of the gubernatorial contest. How much of a difference does money make in, in this kind of race? Money isn't everything, but it definitely matters. Without money, campaigns can't pay their staff, air TV or radio ads, or pay for all those campaign signs you see along roadsides. Those things, the signs, the TV and radio ads, the robocalls, the mailers, they help campaigns reach Marylanders who may not be paying that close attention to the race, but whose votes will matter in November. Of course, Candidates aren't the only ones paying for campaign ads. Outside groups can also raise and spend money on their own. And, for example, just last week, the local arm of the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, pledged half a million dollars of, of support to more. Was there anything in these reports you found particularly intriguing, though? So on the spending side, Cox's running mate, Jordana Schifanelli, reported paying herself more than $8,000 from the campaign. She said the money was used for, quote, meeting expenses, but didn't offer any additional explanation. And I'm sure I'll learn more as I spend more time digging into the reports. I know you'll keep us posted. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. As children across Maryland return to schools this week, on top of the normal summer learning loss, there's a great deal of concern around the emotional and mental preparedness of students after two and a half years of remote, hybrid, and disruptive learning due to the pandemic, which we're still in. According to the Maryland State Department of Education, more than half of all students in the state did not score proficient on last fall's ELA and math assessments. WYPR's education reporter, Jacana Collier, brings us this conversation with Dr. Nakia Showell, medical director of the Johns Hopkins Harriet Lane Clinic. Dr. Showell shares tips on how to prepare and support students this school year. 
Dr. Showell, talk to me about the mission of the Johns Hopkins Harriet Lane Clinic and the type of work that's done there. Absolutely. So the Harriet Lane Clinic's original mission and existing mission is to improve the health and quality of life of children within their families and communities and to educate trainees in this model of care. The clinic was first established as the Harriet Lane Home in 1912. So we've been doing this work for some time. Um, And interestingly, it was the first children's clinic in the U.S. that was associated with a medical school, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, established in 1893. And it was named after Mrs. Harriet Lane Johnston, who established uh, the clinic uh, with a $400,000 donation as a tribute to her sons who died during childhood. And since this time, the Harriet Lane Home has evolved into a leading medical entity for pediatric management, education, and research. And approximately 40% of our patients have chronic medical conditions, and about 80% are eligible for public insurance. We have a very whole patient and whole family comprehensive approach. We offer several real-time services, including mental health assessments and referrals, social work assessments, child life um, specialists specialties, as well as COVID-19 vaccine education, lactation support, and maternal mental health support. Speaking of COVID vaccinations, over the past two and a half years, COVID has taken the medical field by storm. This school year, many school districts across Maryland have relaxed their COVID precautions, meaning less contact tracing, shorter isolation periods, and even mask optional buildings. How can parents help their children cope and potentially navigate fears that they may have around COVID as they return to school? Yeah, an excellent question. Um, So firstly, it's important to discuss for parents to discuss with their children that there are many layers of protection against COVID-19. As I say, there are many tools in our toolbox now. And one of the best tools of protection that we have, um, as we've mentioned, um, is the COVID-19 vaccination, which is now available for all children six months or older. The vaccine is safe, it's effective, and will help to prevent infection, spread, and severe illness from COVID-19. Additionally, there are other things um, that parents should talk to their children about, things that should be done at at home and at school. So frequent hand hygiene, for example, monitoring for COVID-19-like symptoms, testing and staying at home if you have symptoms. Parents should also talk through what to anticipate in schools, given that there are changes, as you mentioned. And during this discussion to try to describe and review what those current protocols and changes are, walk them through an everyday, what an everyday experience may be like in their school now. Um, Tell your child that you are working in partnership with their school to keep them safe and healthy so they can continue to be in the classroom and can continue to learn. Uh, So for example, Baltimore City Public Schools, which has really been leading the region and the nation on screening and testing for COVID, 19 in schools has an excellent website for students and families, which details all the current protocols, including updates from last year. And the goal of this health and safety plan is to keep children, staff, and families as protected as possible while trying to minimize interrupted learning um, and absenteeism. So reassure your child that there is a database, there are tools um, that are in place in school, there are protocols in in school that testing both for screening for COVID-19 and for diagnosing COVID-19 is readily available in many schools. Um, As long as parents have given signed consent, testing can be performed when indicated. Um, So that's a wonderful plan. And as you mentioned, while masking is now optional in schools, it is required under certain conditions. Um, If your child has been exposed to someone with COVID-19, wearing a mask for 10 days is is required. They should also wear a mask if they have any symptoms. And a big change this year, uh, which follows CDC guidance, is that children who are exposed do not have to quarantine or stay home. So they don't have to miss school, but they should wear a mask 
masks for 10 days. So we've talked a little about the health side of COVID, but let's unpack the other ways it has impacted children. For example, the pandemic has disrupted the learning process for students from quarantine to virtual and hybrid learning. It all took a toll on academics and students' social skills. So what should parents and teachers be prepared for in terms of behavior this year, especially for elementary school students? Yes, um, another great question. And certainly the pandemic has had an impact on social skills and has contributed to some learning declines over the past um, two years. Um, and, and what is important, as you mentioned, is that that effect is not equally felt amongst all children. It really does vary based on age. So if you're thinking about different age groups, for our younger children, for example, some of them may have been entering the school system for the first time and during the height of the pandemic. Um, so they may not have, have had the opportunity for in-person learning during those really formative grades when they're learning those socialization skills and foundational learning um, is being introduced. And you can imagine that a four-year-old sitting in front of a tablet or computer screen is not exposed to those interactive and engaging group learning activities that enables socialization and optimal learning. Hence, they may be more of a dis, may be more at a disadvantage than a 12-year-old who's already accustomed to in-person learning, is already accustomed to engaging with friends online, FaceTime and video games, et cetera. However, for both younger and older children alike, the disruption in personal learning was definitely impactful. Um, and some of the tips that I give parents around getting adjusted and being ready for those changes is, again, having conversations with your child prior to during the summer, leading up to school entry um, and throughout the school year about what to expect, about what to anticipate, what is the environment going to look like. And for some students, they may actually need to see what that environment looks like before starting school um, or, or during the early parts of school to really get adjusted to, to their new surroundings. So um, having those conversations with your children um, and walking them through what an everyday day, uh, every day might look like, um, what will be some of the changes that they have to get accustomed to, encourage them to, to speak out in terms of what they're feeling um, and sharing with you, um, encourage them to to talk about their fears, to talk about some of the sources of their anxiety and letting them know and, and, and giving them affirmation that it's okay to talk those things out and it's okay to feel differently, um, especially when they're facing new changes. And for some students, potentially the first time that they're getting a very immersive in-person school experience for the entire school year. Um, so it's okay to have those conversations in the beginning, throughout the school year, um, frequently if you can, um, it's, really, it's really critical. You make a great point about the difference in impact between younger and older students because a study conducted by the Northwest Evaluation Association shows that middle and high school students are struggling with learning loss recovery compared to younger students. And during remote learning, many students fell several grades behind and some students experienced technical difficulties, teachers being unfamiliar with technology, and many students probably lost interest or motivation because of the emotional weight of it all. How do parents, teachers, and even students identify their own needs in order to get help and get back on track this year. Yes. Um, and, and that and that study really outlines some really critical points and that there are different factors that are involved in um, really assessing the variable impact that the pandemic has had on different students. So with regards to age, certainly um, that's a big factor in terms of how kids respond to the has have responded to the pandemic. But also you mentioned technical uh, difficulties. Um, the 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 tech gap is one that we are very well aware of, right? So as kids shifted to the remote remote learning, 
being able to get high quality remote access to, to educational services depended on being able to connect, right? Mm -hmm. And high speed internet in this country is unfortunately not a given for all families in this country, nor is a working tablet, laptop or desktop to connect to such internet. And one of the things that we, that I think that was well realized and something that we were aware of prior to um, is that um, the gap between um, those students who did not have the resources, those who came from historically marginalized or minoritized populations, um, truly um, bear the brunt of the of the of of the pandemic's impact on education. And those gaps between those students and other students who had who were afforded more resources um, has clearly been exacerbated. Right. So one of the key things is again learning and acknowledging and um, which students were more at risk and were more disproportionately. Um, impacted by the pandemic and having targeted resources in place for those particular students. And some of that work is being done. Um, a big part of the American Rescue Plan was intentional funding um, for educational relief um, and particularly targeting those, those students who were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic with respect to education. And that could mean additional investments in tutoring, extended day um, programs, additional summer, summer programming. But a lot of that, the work, again, is done in partnership with families and being able to access, being able to outreach to families to let them know of those opportunities opportunities is a big is the is a big obligation of the school systems right um, and parents being able to work alongside those schools to be able to provide those opportunities for children to transition a bit we've talked about what schools can do but let's talk about what can be done at home since March 2020 kids have been forced to adapt to so much change in their lives what role can daily routines in the morning and at bedtime play in a student's behavior and academics yeah yes and it's um, routines are very important for for children, and especially, again, as things are ever so evolving and changing. Uh, what to what some you know for some children may seem like day to day, it's really important to establish um, consistency so children know what to expect, what to anticipate, um, particularly as they go back to school, um, and especially and especially as they're getting used to new experiences, new surroundings, new activities. It's very critical to put. Um, to put into place sleep slash bedtime routines and morning routines and trying to start that as much as possible in advance of when school is really starting and getting off the ground and having set bedtimes and, and set wait times um, for children. So they have time to gradually adjust to these new daily routines. And even if you are you know, starting school, some many children started today, um, it's still not too late. It's still not too late to still establish those routines and making sure that we have a good school bedtime routine and wake routine that works for your child's schedule that allows them to get adequate sleep um, and remembering that younger children need more sleep, um, at least 10 hours of sleep uh, for proper learning and for proper concentration and having routines that include calming activities, for example, around sleep, shutting off electronic devices, um, hard to do, but it's definitely doable and um, doing other calming activities like taking a bath, reading, singing, um, and having a good wake waking um, routine that includes providing a healthful breakfast to get kids um, fueled for their school day. So it's very important to have those routines, um, not just for sleep and bedtime, but also incorporating healthy mealtime routines as well. I'm so glad you brought up breakfast because where does nutrition fit into this conversation about returning to school? And also regarding routines and bedtimes, should that only apply to younger students? All, all students, all children of all ages uh, should have routines. 
Um, believe it or not, adults can benefit as well from routines um, um, and, sl and sleep. And we think about it just for children as they're learning, but uh, routines and consistency is really important for, for individuals of all ages. And, and particularly as children are changing and, and, and maturing you know, almost every day. Right. So their needs can vary over the over certain periods of time. A younger child has different needs from an older child and vice versa. And so we have to be cognizant of that when we are trying to establish a routine that works for their schedule. Breakfast, healthy meals in general um, are critical um, for concentration, for learning in school and promoting children's overall, overall health. So being able to provide access to healthy meals and snacks is really important, um, not just at home, but at school. So many, many students are also eligible to receive free breakfast and lunch in schools. And there are many schools that offer that. And that's a, a great program to take advantage of. As we come to the end of our conversation, is there anything that you would like to add about how parents can prepare their students for this school year? Um, I would say, again, parents have and maintain an open line of communication with your children. Um, definitely leverage the, the resources that you have within your own home, um, but also be aware and knowledgeable of the resources that schools offer as well. This is a great time to make sure you're up to date on your routine uh, checkups with your child's doctor as well as routine vaccinations, including the COVID-19 vaccination and the flu vaccine as we approach the flu season soon. Um, and remember that there are so many different layers of, of protection against COVID-19. We are fortunately in a different place than we were two years ago, but we are in, still in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and there are certain things and protocols that are in place to keep your children healthy um, and protected so they can continue to learn throughout school. Um, and I get asked this question all the time, should my child wear a mask? Um, and again, as I mentioned, while masks are optional, there are certain situations where your child definitely should wear a mask, but ultimately it's the choice of the family, right? So it depends on what your comfort level is um, and keeping in consideration what risk factors your child or your family at home has for developing severe disease if they do have COVID-19. If your child, for example, has uncontrolled asthma um, and they may be at higher, they may be at higher risk for having severe illness if they do get COVID-19. So you as a parent may elect for your child to wear a mask um, um, consistently in school. And that's completely your choice. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and we encourage you to just follow what you feel comfortable with um, and to be aware of the, the protocols and guidelines that are in place to keep your child and your family safe. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, Bethany Raja, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Kristen Mossbrugger. Our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. So remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.